<laughs> Good evening, everybody. I'm laughing because uh, simultaneously, right after I shared the slide, uh, Arthur Harrow typed to blow and Neil Ottenstein typed to love, uh, both of which are actually very admirable alternate titles uh, for today's class, <clears throat> which I probably should have done, but I, I think I lacked the strength of confidence. The, the, anyway, so good evening. Welcome. Welcome to our second class on the Princess Bride. Um, uh, I want to, as usual, I want to start with a, a, a few quick announcements. Um, first, as I uh, announced last week, uh, you'll remember that I was starting my new multimedia lecture series uh, looking at The Lord of the Rings Online and its adaptation in relationship with Tolkien's work. I had uh, my first session last Friday. This was my uh, my maiden voyage as far as uh, uh, game streaming is because uh, this is a new genre of broadcast for me. Um, and uh, it was a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to uh, 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 going about the Shire. Uh, I, I think... Uh, to, no, it's not tomorrow. Today's Wednesday. Uh, Friday morning, I'm going to be... Uh, I'm going to be cruising around Mickledelving and Tuckborough and Hobbiton. We could uh, go talk to Lobelia Sackville Baggins, I think. So uh, it should definitely be... It, it, should, it should definitely be a lot of fun. If you get a chance... Um, you don't have to, again, you don't have to be in-game to see this if you're just sort of interested to see what they've done with the thing and, um, you know, uh, uh, to, to sort of, you know, hear me talk some about the, the relationship between the two. Um, we have a video posted on our, on the Mythgard YouTube channel, um, so you can, uh, you can find it there too. So, uh, anyway... Just wanted to let you know that that's happening again. The time for that is Friday at 12.30 p.m. is when the live session is going to be. Um, and uh, the address for that is just twitch.tv slash lotrostream, L-O-R-T-O stream, one word. Um, that's the web address for the live session. So, um, so that's happening, uh, continuing to happen. Uh, the uh, second announcement is... Uh, thinking about some upcoming things. On June 13th, if you happen to live in anywhere in the greater New York City area, uh, uh, on June 13th is going to be the first New York Tolkien conference. Um, and uh, they just announced, uh, we just sort of worked out, I'm going to be appearing at that uh, in June. I'm planning to do a, uh, a combined performance uh, with Kate. No, oh, you're coming? That's awesome, Kate. Uh, you're going to like this, Kate. So um, John, Debo John DiBartolo of the Lonely Mountain Band and I are going to do a performance um, a sort of a combined music and dramatic. I'm not going to sing, Carita. Don't get excited. Uh, <laughs> but I am gonna. I'm gonna do some uh, some sort of uh, commentary and dramatic reading. Um, and John's going to do music. It's going to be. It's going to be fun. This is sort of a, a, a wild experiment that John and I have been kind of uh, 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 mulling over for years, actually. Um, Gerald, am I going to rap like William Shatner? Probably not. Um, uh, more like Leonard Nimoy, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, anyway, so it should be a lot of fun. I'm going to be doing that. Um, I might be doing uh, some other things too. So anyway, if uh, if you can uh, make the New York Tolkien Conference, it should be it should be a lot of fun. Um, no, no, I'm not going to sing the Ballad of Bilbo Baggins. That was a joke. I was comparing myself to Leonard Nimoy, but that's that's no. It's uh, um, uh, it's, is it going to be recorded, Karita? I don't know if it's going to be recorded, 
But if it goes well, um, we'll, we'll almost certainly do it again uh, in other places. So um, uh, we'll 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 see. If it doesn't go well, Karina, I wouldn't have wanted a video made. So we'll see. It, it, it should be fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So anyway, just, again, especially for those uh, of you who are there in the New York area, um, definitely, definitely worth looking into. Uh, Saturday, June 13th, just a one-day thing. Um, another uh, announcement that just happened this past week at Mythgard for, the, for our fall semester. Uh, Dr. Amy Sturgis is going to be teaching uh, her fall semester uh, class on Star Wars uh, in sort of celebration of the anticipation of the new Star Wars film. Um, her class is going to be awesome. Uh, Dr. Sturgis is enormously excited. Uh, and for those of any of you who have taken a class with Dr. Sturgis before, I mean excited even by her standards uh, for, the, for the Star Wars class. Uh, this coming fall. So that should be an awesome uh, opportunity to kind of look at um, look at at sort of the, the whole run of the films, the whole sort of Star Wars experience. Uh, it's it's links. Uh, Doctor Sturgis is so good at sort of showing the 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 links and roots of these things within the science fiction culture of the time with you know it, she she does such a great job giving a kind of an intellectual background uh, to things uh, I'm really excited to hear her tackle Star Wars and I know she's already officially lined up um, one of the uh, uh, one of the Star Wars novelists uh, is going to be coming to the class and giving a guest presentation it's going to be a lot of fun so um uh, the so the Star Wars class is is uh, is is officially happening uh, in the fall semester at Mythgard, and finally, uh, I would like to announce. This is a big announcement now. We have an official starting date for the Silmarillion film project. It's been slightly delayed. Uh, for which we're sorry, but we wanted to make sure we were... Because this is going to be a long project, as you know, and we want to make sure we had all of our ducks in a row before we just went herring off after it. So, uh, this and this has never uh, been announced before, and I don't think I'm going to get in trouble for announcing it now. Uh, the official start date of the Silmarillion Film Seminar will be Friday, June 5th. Uh, we're going to do a prime time U.S. time, uh, a, a a prime a special prime time opening um, uh, 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 session, um, our sort of inaugural session of the Silm Film Project, uh, and uh, we're going uh, so, and that'll be that'll be in the evening of June Friday, June fifth. Um, we're very, very excited about that. In that episode, we're going to explain all the, you know, sort of the, 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 the theory of what we're doing, how we're going to approach it, some of the structural decisions that we've made. We're going to talk about, uh, you know, how the broadcast is going to work. We have a lot of ideas for how we're really hoping the Silmarillion Film Project is going to be, be able to be collaborative between, you know, between me and our co-hosts and special guests and the listeners, most importantly. Um, in ways that we just have never been able to do before. So we're really excited about that. Um, and we'll explain how all that stuff is going to work, and we'll have our first, uh, our first topic for general discussion and debate um, related to how we approach the film. So anyway, we're... Um, um, we're gonna, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna do all that stuff Friday, the evening of Friday, June 5th. Um, so that's, 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 you guys are the first to hear about this. No one's been told that date yet. So there we are. Um, okay. So that's the end of our, uh, uh, 
unusually momentous uh, uh, announcement portion uh, of our show today. Um, let's talk about The Princess Bride. I would like to begin with a confession and uh, a uh, response to a comment um, by a listener. Uh, let me do the listener response first, and then I'll get to the confession. Um, so uh, James Alderman on our on the Mythgard Academy Facebook page uh, was confessing that he found uh, the first Princess Bride uh, uh, lecture a little bit hard to bear. He says um, he says that uh, he 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 says he can see what I was doing but that I really was being just like a Columbia professor uh, in the way that I was talking about the Princess Bride. Um, concerning which, guilty, like, I'm a professor from Columbia. But anyway, uh, but, but I see what he's saying. Um, and his basically, he clearly thinks that in our discussion, we're sort of overthinking things, you know, trying to build this really complex structure of Goldman the narrator versus Morgan starting, trying to tease all that stuff out. And he seems to think that we're kind of making heavy weather of all of that. Um, he said, I have the sense that Goldman is just being sarcastic in what I would respectfully call a Jewish way. His parentheses remind me of Woody Allen or some humorist of that type. Um, and he's also wondering if perhaps he's, uh, isn't consciously playing off of Tolkien in his frame narration. Um, Okay, so here's uh, so first my my response uh, uh, to James, and which sort of will contain a confession as well. Um, there are two things generally. Well, okay, no, there are two things. One generally, one specifically that I would say about this. First, in general terms, comedy is hard. That is, it's not hard to do, but it's hard to talk about. Or rather, it's hard to talk about without sounding pedantic. Um, when something is moving or stirring or dramatic, you can kind of, I find anyway, my experience as a teacher and kind of doing close readings and analysis and stuff, I find it easier to try to kind of get at the heart of things, you know, to kind of dig into it and see, like, what is it about this that I find so stirring? And usually, when uh, when I do that, my own experience, anyway, is normally that that increases rather than decreases the effect of the stirringness. Um, that the, 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 the closer I look at it, the better I understand what's going on, the more awesome I find it rather than the less. That, at least, is... Um, is my um, uh, uh, that always is my own experience. Comedy, though, works differently. I still find when I, when something is funny, and I'm looking at it carefully to see like wherein does the humor lie, right? Like what is it that makes this, you know, what is funny exactly about this, and you know, in what direction is the comedy sort of pushing us? Whenever I ask that question. I do find, generally, uh, that that process leaves me with sort of an enriched understanding and perhaps a greater respect for what's going on, but it doesn't enhance the experience of comedy, right? If I find something really moving, I, I, you know, I find, I, I mean, I've confessed many times before that I cry every time I read The Battle of Pelennor Field uh, in The Return of the King. 
reading it really carefully and really breaking it down paragraph by paragraph and really thinking through what's going on there makes me cry harder, not less. Okay, it doesn't it doesn't distance me from it. Um, it 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 makes it even more poignant to me. The more I dig into into it, the more I stop and think about what's going on rather than just kind of letting it roll over me. The more moving I find it. But again, that's not true with comedy. Um, with comedy, I. Um, that is to say, again, it increases my appreciation of a thing, but it doesn't enrich the experience. I don't laugh harder when I'm thinking through it very carefully. Um, it it decreases that the reaction of spontaneous laughter. Often, again, I come away with a net increased enjoyment of the thing, but the process of looking at comedy isn't funny. And so, therefore, it's... It, it feels more like a downer, um, and, and it can seem so. Anyway, that's that's my that's my sort of general response. That I kind of acknowledge that, um, but one response, one common response to that fact. Um, I've often encountered this, of course, in class. You know, when, like teaching a bunch of undergrads, and we're reading something funny, and I'm trying to get them to really stop and think about it, and to and to ask the question, like, "What exactly is funny about this?" Or, you know, "What are we being invited to laugh at?" The same kinds of questions that I was asking last time. And people, especially people who really like and found funny the thing that we're reading, right, um, will often be like, "Oh, come on, it's just ruining it," right? Um, why can't we just why can't we just accept that it's funny and move on? And James, I'm not saying that that's necessarily exactly what you're saying here, uh, but uh, but but I mean that's certainly one way in which you know a comment like yours could be taken. Um, I again, I totally understand that. I can personally sympathize with that point of view, um, with that experience or that sort of desire to preserve the spontaneous comedic response, but. Um, I don't. Oh, wonderful! Kate just made a wonderful parallel. Kate Neville, I, I think you're right. Uh, she said, "In a way, it's like stage magic. If you know the trick, you may appreciate the skill, but you may also lose the wonder." Um, yeah, it's not exactly the same because there's not like the wonder involved. But you're, but, but that's exactly right. By thinking through why it's funny, I can come up with a greater appreciation for the comic genius of the person who wrote the thing. Um, but I'm not, I'm not chuckling the whole time I'm doing it. Um, so yeah, yeah, that, that that's a great uh, that's a great parallel, um, but um, anyway, so okay. In that way, I find the analysis of comedy hard, or at least I find it um, it's not appealing. It's like usually not a crowd pleaser. Again, especially among people who find the thing funny. However, there's one way in which I I, I always feel the need to kind of push back against that, um, and. That is, I don't think... You can always tell when I'm about to make a statement that contains the word ever or, or always or never. Uh, when I pause like this to think, okay, do I really want to say that? No, I'm pretty sure. Um, I don't think that I... Um, I don't think it's ever true that something is merely funny or just comedy. Um... Whenever you're laughing, you're always laughing at something. It doesn't mean you're always laughing at somebody. Like it's, I'm not saying that all comedy is comedy like at somebody else's expense. A lot of it is comedy at somebody's expense, but that's not, that, that's not what I mean. 
there's always there's always something that you're being invited to laugh at. Comedy, there's a reason why satire is popular. There's a reason why comedy is popular among people who are wanting to make a particular point, to people who are wanting to skewer or, or parody uh, or criticize a particular person or institution or thing. Because it works, because it's very effective. Um, there is always... But I'm not saying there's always a, a, an overt planned agenda on the part of the comedian. The comedian might not think about it much at all. But um, it's... There's always... I, I, in comedy, when you're laughing, you're always laughing at something. And it's always interesting to think. Well, again, not everyone finds it interesting. I always find it interesting to think what it is that you're laughing at, because you're laughing at something. And something is there that you are laughing There's something that you're perceiving that's funny. And usually, I, I think in this case, certainly, with The Princess Bride... Um, Goldman himself, that is Goldman the narrator, talks about satire all the time, right? Has has explicitly said that the, 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 the that the Princess Bride is a satire, right? And is himself overtly critical of many things. He, he claims that Morgenstern is openly critical of several, you know, tells us several of the things that Morgenstern is himself critical of, right? Doctors and royalty, for instance. Um, he, Goldman, the narrator, is also openly critical of some things. Um, there is clearly satire going on. The comedy is clearly pointing in a direction. Um, I, I cannot accept, when I read The Princess Bride, that this is merely undirected humor. Um, it's not undirected humor. Again, I don't actually believe in undirected humor, but, um, you know, sort of free-floating comedy... Um, yeah, Kate, that's a, 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 another uh, word of wisdom from Kate here. Comedy is a way of revealing uncomfortable truths without making the audience uncomfortable until they go home and think about it. Um, yeah, it does. Comedy does reveal uncomfortable truths. Um, and this is true even... Uh, this is true even, again, when it's not satire. When it, when it doesn't have a particular point. When it's not grinding a particular axe. I'm not necessarily saying all comedy grinds an axe. Um, but, but there's something. You know, when we watch Charlie Chapman, you know, bump into things and fall off of stuff and do the kind of physical comedy that Chaplin was so great at... Um, there's something that we're laughing at here, even if it's just something about the human condition. Um, uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis who once said that the oldest, uh, the oldest truth of comedy, like the, the oldest joke uh, in human experience, is the human body and the fact that humans have bodies, um, and we laugh at things that our bodies do all the time. Um, th- you know, that's. See, that's pretty undirected comedy, right? You know, like fart jokes are pretty, you know, seem to be pretty undirected comedy, not necessarily satirical, though sometimes they are. Um, uh, I'm thinking, for instance, of the enormously elaborate fart joke uh, that Chaucer did in one of his tales. I think it's, I think it's probably the longest developing fart joke in English literature that I know of. But um, anyway. Uh, so sometimes they are pointed uh, like that one, but I mean, you know, when it's just when it's just you know what people might call crude physical comedy, um, 
there's st- there is still something that we're laughing at. I mean, we're laughing at like the frailties of the human body. We're la- I mean, there's 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 still something there. There's still something to think about. There's still something to talk about. It's not as fun as just laughing at it. And it might seem to spoil it. I don't think it spoils it. I think it can only enrich it the more that we think about it. But it's not funny to do. So and it, so this is this is one my general thing, and. And if so, people who are resistant to thinking carefully about what underlies the humor in The Princess Bride, I sympathize with that feeling, but I don't agree with it. And I'm, um, and I'm going to carry on doing it. So that's, that's, that's the general time. But the specific thing is specific about the, specific, uh, to The Princess Bride. And this is where my confession comes in. Um, I, I had an awesome time in the first class. I had a great time uh, in our first Princess Bride class. Um, and uh, let me tell you what happened in the last class. Um, my experience reading this book, as I admitted last time, I read, I saw the movie first, and I saw and loved the movie before I ever read this book. Um, and so for me, The Princess Bride is like primarily the movie, and then there's also the book. That's always been my experience of this, and I confessed that last time. Um, but it's it's not only that, Mike, I, I've never really liked this book all that much. And in fact, when I just came back and reread it recently, I disliked it more than I'd ever disliked it before. I was having a really hard time um, I, I well, getting into it is so vague and unhelpful. Um, but, but anyway, there were just there were a bunch of things about it, and in particular, the thing that annoyed me the most was Goldman's narrator figure, um, whom I found found wildly unsympathetic, um, and whom I really just wish would keep quiet. Um, and I was kind of enjoying the satirical Morgenstern stuff, uh, but uh, but Goldman himself was really sort of annoying me. The idea. The concept of reading it in the way that we were in class last time, thinking about this as this uh, much more thoroughgoing and elaborate two-level structure. I mean, it's obviously a two-level structure where you have the Morgenstern stuff and the Goldman stuff on top of that. Um, but thinking about the Goldman narrator figure, the one that, that annoyed me when I was reading it, um, thinking about the Goldman narrator figure in the way that we were last time, as itself a fictional construct, so that we have... Goldman, the author, who is managing both of these two levels independent of himself, that he's not just spontaneously expressing himself in the narrator figure, um, but rather he's constructed this narrator persona and he's constructed the Morgenstern persona, and he's playing those two things off of each other. Um, When once we got into thinking about it like that, I found my enjoyment and appreciation of this book rose enormously. By the end of class last time, um, concerning which almost everything I said in class last time I'd had no, in- I'd, I'd, I'd had no intention of saying. I mean, I, I, once, we, once we went there, I like diverged completely from everything I had like thought of saying about the book, which was great, because my main problem when I was planning the first class, since I was just kind of annoyed by Goldman, was just going to be trying to downplay that as much as possible and try to be like as non-whiny as possible about the book, because I really dislike disliking things, and I certainly don't want to spend a lot of time just bashing something. Um, But I found, again, once we got that, once we sort of established that construction, 
I was I was loving that. At the end of class, I liked this book ten times more than I liked it when I started class last time. Um, so this is my specific response, James, uh, to your observation, which is you have two alternatives. If you uh, you can either humor me while we think about this as a complex two level construction like that, um, or if if you could compel me to abandon that, I would just have to go back to whining um, about how much I am annoyed by the Goldman narrator, and nobody really nobody really wants that. Um, so, uh, uh, so, so, uh, surely, surely, this is uh, this is this is preferable. Thomas Johnson asks, why does Goldman's narrator need to be sympathetic for the book to work? It doesn't. It doesn't. But again, it doesn't so long as I uh, separate it. Um, and it's funny. It, it's a funny thing because it's not like anything has changed, right? I mean, it's not like I now really like the Goldman narrator where I used to really dislike him. But I can I can appreciate him as a fictional construction. Um, that is, I'm free to dislike the narrator without simply disliking the book and its author. Um, so that was extreme. That 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 thinking about it that way is extremely, I find, extremely liberating. Um, and um, uh, so so yeah. So Thomas, I agree. Um, thinking about uh, thinking about you know sort of the Goldman narrator as a kind of uh, a kind of antihero protagonist. No, I'm cool with that. I think that's uh, I think I I think that's good. Um, but uh, but again, I I certainly liked it. I, let me see if I can pinpoint the difference that I feel like it makes. It means that the narrator's voice is no longer, for me, the sort of normative voice of the book. It's equally prevalent, has the same number of words in it and everything, but it no longer defines the spirit of the book. Um, it relates to that spirit in some ways as other elements of the book sort of contribute to it, but it isn't, um, it is no longer for me the default frame. Adding a frame outside it to me makes a tremendous difference uh, in, um, in, in, in thinking about it. Yeah. Karina says, all the liberty in disliking a fictional character. Yeah, kind of. But again, to me, it's, it's different. It's, um, well, it's the difference between saying, the primary point of this book is just to be like cranky and uh, embittered and whiny, um, and also to you know to sort of parody a, a, a fairy tale as we go along. Um, that I don't find at all an appealing book. Um, but to say that uh, um, you know to say that. No, instead we're going to do a parody of this, but we're going to we're going to we're, we're going to do the parody of the fairy tale, but we're going to set the parody of the fairy tale within the framework of an unsympathetic kind of doofus narrator uh, who doesn't get it and is unappealing in various ways. But 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 that's part of the story. But that's part of the frame. That is inviting me to a completely different imaginative exercise. It's inviting me into a different imaginative world. It puts distance between me and the narrator of the story, imaginatively. And I like that distance. I like the Goldman narrator so much more from that distance than I did when uh, when I was sort of accepting his voice as sort of the, the final uh, 
um, uh, the, the 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 final uh, 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 you know the, the 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 entire the entire voice. Um, now let me also add. I know that there are many of you. I was uh, I was been having email exchanges uh, with uh, with uh, Catherine Sass, who loves this book, and and I, uh, you know, as Cat knows, greatly respect her judgment and opinion. I'm delighted to hear uh, her responses uh, to the book. She really likes the book, and and uh, and and was sort of disappointed that I didn't like it as much, um, but but it's, I'm I'm totally open to it. I I am I am I I said I. I like liking things. I like respecting things. I would rather do that than bash it. Um, so I am for those of you who, you know, are sort of horrified to hear that I that I you know had an experience of just really strongly disliking this book when I when I was when I was reading it. Um, convince me, win me over, please win me over. I'd love to be won over. I, I'm I'm already a bunch won over from last time, and I'm open to being more won over. Um, but. Um, um, but anyway, that's uh, um, that's 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 you know so that's 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 my framework there. So okay, that's my sort of response, disclaimer, confession, uh, and um, we're gonna we're gonna and no, Kate, I love the film. Don't worry, I love the film. Um, and one of the things when we get to talking about the film, um, one of the things that I mean, I. I'm going to be really interested in doing, you know, I, I want to look at some careful, um, do some p- careful comparison and contrast with the book and the film. Um, cause I think this, the differences are remarkable. Um, I could scarcely, in some ways I can like scarcely believe that they were written by the same person, some of the changes that were made. Um, but anyway, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, exactly, Sarah Kings is the true confessions of a of a of a Columbia academic. Exactly, that's 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 exactly what's going on here. Okay, um, now, okay, another smaller confession. Uh, and before you start making fun of me for uh, it's being more than half an hour into class and, and me not having advanced to slide number one yet, because um, I know that that's just like on the tip of the tongue of some of you. Uh, I. I'm, I've already decided. I think I'm gonna. We're gonna have to add a class. I was hoping to get through the book in three sessions. I think we're gonna need a fourth session. I'm really pretty sure we're gonna need a fourth session. And again, in part, that's because, uh, you know, one of the reasons I scheduled three sessions for the book is because I was like, oh gosh, there's so much I don't like, and again, I don't want to just be all negative. Anyway. Uh, now there's more to talk about, and so I'm 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 wanting to sort of uh, to sort of expand. Um, yeah, Brianna says the question is, will we get to this week's assigned chapters? Indeed, that is the question. Um, we'll see. I'm going to try. I think I think we're going to get to some of it. By no means all. Uh, let me let me admit from the outset. Um, I made an attempt when I was planning tonight's class. I made an attempt to be like, okay, I want to talk about I want to talk about Buttercup, and I want to talk about Wesley, and I want to talk about Humperdinck. Uh, and then after that, you know, we'll get to talking about Indigo and Fezzik and Fezzini too. Yeah, that'll, that'll be great. Uh, and, and I was like, okay, there's like a 0% chance that that's going to happen, right? I mean, uh, uh, that's that's absolutely uh, that's absolutely not going to uh, uh, gonna, gonna, gonna happen. So, uh, 
I'm not even going to try to talk about Inigo and Fezzik this week. We're gonna, we're gonna, I'll save them for next week, and we're gonna, I'm gonna see if we can talk about Buttercup and Wesley and Humperdinck uh, tonight. So uh, that's my plan. So now, what I want to do um, when we, t- yeah, Thomas Johnson says chapter five is long enough to be its own novella. I never, I never page through this book without being amazed at how long chapter five is. I keep, I keep expecting it to end, and it just doesn't end. Um, uh, anyway, yeah. So, okay. Here's what I want to do. I want to be looking at these three characters that I mentioned, Buttercup, and then Wesley, and then Humperdinck. Um, yeah, in part, we're going to be... I mean, the stuff is going to come up again. I mean, I want to be thinking in terms of the framework that we discussed last time, thinking about, you know, Morgenstern and what we can see Morgenstern doing, how Goldman is sort of framing that, and, and what our relationship to what Morgenstern is doing, um, you know, h- how that comes in. I want to be thinking about that stuff. But last time we really focused primarily on the frame and looking at the different uh, layers. Today I want to I want to kind of dive down a little bit further think about these characters, see what is, what's, what's going on here, you know, what do we notice happening, how are we as readers supposed to react to the story, how are we supposed to be reacting to these characters, um, uh, given that framework uh, that, that we're in, um, and I want to, I want to start with Buttercup, so let's look at Buttercup's declaration of love for Wesley, okay, so um, we've had that moment Buttercup's moment of awakening, right when she is awakened by uh, by jealousy. We talked about the cactus envy passage last time. Um, she's uh, she is awakened by jealousy to the realization of her love for Wesley, uh, and in uh, uh, that takes a while, of course. And then she shows up at his hovel uh, in the middle of the night and delivers herself of this address. I'll read the first two slides because it's long. Um, while I do this, I want you to be making, you know, as I'm reading, go ahead and start typing in observations. So what things jump out at you? How do we, again, where are we in reading this? That's a really vague question, but do you see what I mean by that? Um, what kind of relationship is this narrative asking us to have with Buttercup? Um, one really crude way of asking that question would be, are we laughing at Buttercup or with Buttercup, right? Are we laughing with Morgenstern or at Morgenstern, right? What are the dynamics of this? Um, Where are we positioned? And what parts of uh, of the passage really makes us think really make us think that, okay? So the more specific observations you can make, the better. And again, feel free to start typing those in as I'm reading. I love you, Buttercup said. I know this must come as something of a surprise, since all I've ever done is scorn you and degrade you and taunt you, but I have loved you for several hours now, and every second more. I thought an hour ago that I loved you more than any woman has ever loved a man, but a half an hour after that, I knew that what I felt before was nothing compared to what I felt then. But ten minutes after that, I understood that my previous love was a puddle compared to the high seas before a storm. Your eyes are like that, did you know? Well, they are. How many minutes ago was I? Twenty? Had I brought my feelings up to then? It doesn't matter. I love you so much more now than twenty minutes ago that there cannot be comparison. 
I love you so much more now than when you opened your hovel door. There cannot be comparison. There is no room in my body for anything but you. My arms love you. My ears adore you. My knees shake with blind affection. My mind begs you to ask it something so it can obey. Do you want me to follow you for the rest of your days? I will do that. Do you want me to crawl? I will crawl. I will be quiet for you, or sing for you, or if you are hungry, let me bring you food, or if you have thirst, and nothing will quench it but Arabian wine, I will go to Araby, even though it is across the world, and bring a bottle back for your lunch. Anything there is I can do for you, I will do for you. Anything there is that I cannot do, I will learn to do. What do you think? Where are we here? Okay. Um, Kristen Hauk says, Buttercup is definitely the target of humor here. Sounds like that to me, certainly. Um, Now, again, let's try, it's challenging, try to be as specific as possible. Can we prove it? How would we prove it? What makes us think that exactly? The more concrete we can be, the more confident we can feel about our conclusions. Um, okay, Sarah, uh, uh, let's see, let me take a stab at your last name, Sarah, because uh, there are like five, four or five Sarahs uh, who routinely, in fact, tonight we have a new record. We have a new Sarah record. We have four different Sarahs in attendance. That's awesome. Um, uh, uh, Sarah Clendening, is the stress on the first syllable? Clendening? Is that right? Um, Anyway, Sarah Clendening says, Goldman, the author, does a really good job of getting into the mind and emotions of a 17-year-old girl. It's a little hyperbolic, but I know girls who express emotions similar to these. Um, Good enough? How did I do it wrong? Anyway, never mind. Um, Anyway, you're right, it is a little hyperbolic, um, but I agree, certainly one of the things that is being conveyed here is that kind of effusive, um, the constant, the sort of the continual stream, the length of this declaration seems to me as significant as almost anything individually said in it, right? That's one concrete observation that I would offer. Um, remember, one of the jokes here is that he's not said anything, yet she, he's just opened the door and she starts, this just streams out, and she keeps chattering and chattering and chattering, even answering for him in a sense, like, not not, not quite, but, you know, had I brought my feelings up to them? It doesn't matter, right? She's asking these questions, these sort of rhetorical questions, like, back and forth. She's doing, like, back and forth with herself without letting him speak at all, right? So there's definitely that kind of, that that sense of impetuous, immature, explosion of emotion on her part. I agree. And Sarah, that suggests to me that it's... To me, that reduces the amount that I consider this to be a mockery of her in particular. That is, yes, we're laughing at Buttercup, but there's a kind of understanding laughter there, right? That if we recognize this as a slight exaggeration of you know the effusions of a 17 year old girl um, it sort of I don't know, singles her out less it makes it, it makes it feel like less of a mockery to me, I think um, uh, 
Yeah, Kate says, as the parent of a 19-year-old girl, I'm recently familiar with 17-year-olds. Mine is not so effusive, but this is not unfamiliar. Um, the passion of one who has not yet experienced the for, the better or worse or till death do you part uh, element uh, of love. Um, yeah, yeah. Neil says, it does have a feeling of love at, f- uh, love at first real sight. Um, yeah, yeah. Again, that, that, that it is capturing something there, that it is capturing something of something of authentic emotion, that it's not merely parodic, right? It's not just a joke, entirely a joke, at Buttercup's expense. That there's something of, of real effusive, spontaneous emotion on, on her part, even if it's, you know, sort of teasing the immaturity of that. Um, and, uh, and, Neil, as you say, it has, it has those kind of hallmarks of you know, I am overwhelmed by this love at, as you say, Neil, love at first true sight. It's not love at first sight, obviously. But, uh, but, uh, but yeah, good. Um, let's see. More observations. There are many of them. Sarah Powell says, um, it's all about Buttercup and how she observes and measures her affection for Wesley, uh, which has us laughing at her, but I'm still of the persuasion that the fault lies with Morgan Stern's ridiculous writing. Excellent point, Sarah. And that's a question, one of the things I want to sort of get to and kind of tease out, because that's one of the things that, by introducing these different levels, um, at the very least, one of the, one, of the, one of the readerly situations that Goldman has created by giving us this base text and interspersing his commentary upon it, he has demanded that we take this kind of a critical response to it, right? The way he's prompting us to do that in his italic commentaries, right? When he, br- when he breaks in and basically removes all of chapter four by saying this stuff, like Morgan Stern is totally out of control here, puts in all this stuff and it's really boring and it's really not important. He's, he's demonstrating for us, we should be critical of Morgan Stern. We should be resistant to Morgan Stern in some ways. Um, even though he's saying that he's the great master of narrative and everything, um, he is uh, he's engaging our judgment, our critical faculties as we're reading Morgan Stern. Therefore, I think it's not only uh, appropriate but inescapable to be asking those kinds of questions. So, but 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 I, I want to uh, before we get to that level, I want to think a little bit more about uh, what Buttercup is saying and sort of Buttercup herself, and then be trying to figure out kind of where to place it uh, in that sense. Um, okay, good. Um, let's see, Sarah King says, it's over the top and we're supposed to laugh, but I find myself sympathizing too. Uh, maybe it's partly because I know that she really does mean it, but I do know the rest of the story. I agree that one of the things that has a huge impact on our reading of Buttercup's character here is the extent to which this is sincere. If she is expressing her sincere feelings, but doing so in a comical way, that's one thing, right? If she's saying all this stuff, which is comical, but it turns out that she is wildly exaggerating her feelings and she doesn't actually mean any of this stuff, that's a different thing. And we have a very different relationship with... The distance between us and Buttercup is going to be a great deal more, right? 
we can sympathize with her and laugh at her at the same time. That's possible. Um, and I, I'm open, I'm definitely open to that reading. Of course, we have to kind of suspend this to see how things go later on. And my argument will be, we're going to get some kind of evidence in both ways, but that's exactly one of the things I want to be looking at as we go through. And you know, there are a bunch of other uh, buttercup passages that I want to look at uh, in order to in order to uh, to 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 do this. Jennifer's pointing out that it's not simply an exaggeration. She says, "I know people who would and did talk like this." Yes, of course, Jennifer. My response to that would be, um, uh, "Yes, that's true." And Goldman is making fun of them too, <laughs> right? It's not to say that, that that doesn't make it not funny that people would really would really uh, would really talk like this, um, but. Um, uh, but nevertheless, I understand what you mean. That is to say, it's it's not that this is simply so crazy over the top that it's wildly unrealistic, and it's it it goes into the realm of pure parody of human of human expression, you know, of of of, of love of love affection. Um, yeah. Now, Meta makes a really interesting point. Meta Swanson says Buttercup never mentions anything she loves about him. It's entirely about her. Not even how she sees him. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Meta, the only thing she says is about the color of his eyes, right? Which shows that she has noticed him and thought about him. But I agree, as somebody, and I've already forgotten who it was, uh, said earlier on, um, uh, she's talking all about herself and the dimensions of her own feelings, right? Um, and, of course, in part, this follows from the previous scene that we've seen, that prolonged jealousy sequence when she is very, very slowly coming to the realization that she actually loves Wesley. Um, So in part, what's happening here is not only that she is overcome with love for Wesley, but overcome with the realization that she loves him, right? So in part... Uh, one of the one of the this is of course the moment when she is expressing her love to Wesley, but it's also a moment where she is verbalizing self discovery as well. And in fact, she's telling a self discovery narrative throughout these passages. Right, an hour ago I felt like this, and then half an hour ago I felt like that. Right, um, but but Meta, I agree with you. That is that's st- st- still kind of self absorbed. Right? We can take that in a couple different ways. We could take that as Buttercup being sort of innocent and spontaneous, you know, verbalizing these sort of, you know, unselfconsciously verbalizing, uh, you know, her own emotional processes. Or we could see this as her being uh, self absorbed uh, and annoying. Both of those readings would fit that. Right. So again, we need to put that together with other things to really kind of sort of see the trend of things. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. So let's 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 look at the next bit. This is um, the uh, her, about her self improvement here. Um, this is after Wesley has left, but before she hears about his uh, probable death. Every morning she awoke, if possible, by dawn, and got the farm chores finished immediately. There was much to be done now, with Wesley gone, and more than that, ever since the Count had visited, everyone in the area had increased his milk order, so there was no time for self-improvement until well into the afternoon. But then she really set to work. First a good cold bath. Then, while her hair was drying, she would slave after fixing her figure faults. One of her elbows was just too bony, the opposite wrist not bony enough, and exercise what remained of her baby fat, 
little left now, she was nearly eighteen, and brush and brush her hair. What do you make of this? Now here, since this is not Buttercup's words, right, this is not a question of the impression that Buttercup herself is making on us. This is where we really confront more squarely the question of what is Morgan Stern up to here? Again, within the fictional frame that Morgan Stern was real uh, and that this is the story that Morgan Stern has written about, you know, that historical heroine of Florin Buttercup. Um, how is, what kind of cues is Morgan Stern giving us in how we respond, uh, how we respond to Buttercup and how we, and how we look at this? Um, yeah, Mary Rose says it says more about uh, Morgan Stern and how he thinks improvement works. Um, yeah, Carita, I was just thinking exactly your question and following up to that. How exactly does one slim a wrist while fattening their elbow? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, it doesn't really make much sense. Um, notice the language there is really vague, right? Fixing her figure faults? Like, that's a neat trick, I guess, if you can if you can manage it. Um, what's the effect of that? I mean, the, 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 the lack of detail there, the kind of implausibility of it, the, and to me, one of the things that I keep, that I myself as a reader keep coming back to when we get to passages like this, we talked about this a little bit last time, is Morgan Stern's insistence on this kind of, you know, him talking about feminine beauty yeah, it, it's like as if like figure a panel of figure skating judges were evaluating a beauty pageant. You know, um, the 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 specificity of the criticisms and the the intricate uh, sort of fake detail of the rankings and all of that stuff. Um, the way that he keeps anatomizing stuff, like the business about her elbow and her wrist, right? Um, uh, you know that you can quantify Buttercup is almost completely beautiful. The only thing that are, that are holding her back from perfect beauty are, like, the slight imperfection of the one wrist and the opposite elbow. Um, the, the implausible precision of that um, uh, is... And it's, that's, that's just one of the trends that I see in his narration, Morgenstern's narration, now the fictional Morgenstern's narration, uh, that and it's one of the things that I find keeps keeps me distant. Um, it's I don't know. And maybe and maybe I'm wrong to think that, but it keeps sort of to me it keeps kind of pushing pushing back and further away, not letting me just kind of get into you know just sort of imaginatively connect with Buttercup as a person, um, it's asking me to continually be an evaluator, like I'm reading an evaluator's sheet on her, right? Um, now, I agree, as a couple of you are pointing out, um, what it tells us about her and what she's doing about her actions are different, right? Um, uh, there's, she's doing, you know, she's doing real work, right? Uh, Kate says, 
the details are satirical, but the fact that she is voluntarily doing the jobs that Wesley used to do is the real driving force in her development. Yes, as well as, of course, her desire now to make herself more beautiful, which she was neglecting before. She was filthy and unwashed and never combed her hair. and you know, So she was... Um, what's the opposite of vain? There's got to be an opposite, right? What's the opposite? I'm like failing my... Uh, my... Huh. Maybe. Uh, uh, Sarah Clinton and, and Arthur at Harrow at the same time said humble... Uh, Patrick, Neil, and Lynn have immediately suge- have suggested modest and uh, maybe I have a hard time accepting humble. Uh, humble is the antonym of proud, and while vain is a subset of pride, um, that's why I'm not willing to accept humble as an antonym of va- of, of of vain. Uh, because it's not specific enough. Um, to say you're vain is a different thing than just to say you're proud. Um, so therefore I want a word that conveys the same dis- the same distinction. So it's not just me, there isn't really one? Okay. A thesaurus that says modest? Yeah. Thesauruses, thesauri, or tend to be unimaginative. Um, unpretentious. I like that. Now, an unword is cheating when you're doing antonyms. Um, of course, unpretentious is technically the antonym of pretentious, uh, but that's closer. That's closer. Um, Brianna says, "When in doubt, invent a word." That, of course, is my normal is my normal thing. But here we'd have to invent a completely new word. Like, this is not just making up a new form, right? This is not just like my favorite made-up word, verisimilitudinous. Uh, you know, when, like, verisimilitude needs, a, needs an adjectival form. Uh, uh, no, this is a whole new thing. Um, apathetic? No, that's too broad. That's too broad. Yeah. Hmm. Well, anyway, sorry. That's interesting. Isn't it interesting that we don't have a word for that? We have a word for vain. We don't have a word for unvain, for not vain. We have this this careful, um, again, this careful subcategorization of pride to describe that thing in people. But we don't have the parallel compliment to give to people when they're not vain. It's fascinating, isn't it? Um... Hmm. Anyway, okay, sorry. Uh, these little linguistic puzzles are distracting me. So, but what I was saying, the reason I'm talking about this, is that Buttercup, prior to her discovery that she loved Wesley, uh, did not take any care at all for her appearance. Now she is, right? Um, but in a way which is still not... You st- I, I don't think we could... St- even now call her vain, however, even though she's now spending all of this time slaving after fixing her figure and brushing and brushing her hair. Um, 
because she's not doing it for herself or her own self, but she's doing it out of love for another. She is thinking of Wesley always and wanting to make him happy. That might make her other things, but it doesn't make her vain exactly. A vain person is someone who's always looking at themselves in the mirror. Somebody who is... um, who pleases themselves with their own appearance and pleases themselves with what other people think of them. Um, the extent to which Buttercup seems genuinely to be thinking about only pleasing Wesley, um, in my mind, takes her out of the uh, the the vanity camp, exactly. So I, I don't have that to criticize in her. Um, but But again, I find it interesting that in this moment... This could be a tender moment where we saw her, at least somewhat ridiculous, verbal effusions of love uh, when she uh, confronted Wesley with her uh, Wesley with her feelings. Um, this could be a moment where we see, you know, sort of the, her tender inward changes and and uh, uh, you know and the the sort of the depth of her of her you know her her love and her thinking about Wesley remember all that criticism that we were making before about how that speech was all about herself this could be a really good counter action to that and yet it might still accomplish that we might still feel that from this passage and yet i find that effect qualified by the distance that Morgan Stern insists that we keep by looking at her like you know like 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 we're the Russian figure skating judge, uh, you know in in this you know with the criticizing her her, her bony elbow um, here, um, so I I uh, um, again in thinking about how we are being positioned how Morgan Stern is inviting us to relate to Buttercup. Um, I feel like that particular impulse, that particular sort of judgmental impulse, um, seems to me to work in in the opposite direction of just investing in the really kind of sweet thing that's going on in her character here. Um, but then, of course, Wesley dies. Let's uh, look at her grief. So this is she's coming out of her room now. She's been shut in her room for a long time after she hears. Um, about his uh, putative death. And when she at last came out, her eyes were dry. Her parents stared up from their silent breakfast at her. They both started to rise, but she put a hand out, stopped, stopped them. I can care for myself, please. And she set about getting some food. In point of fact, she had never looked, she had never looked as well. She had entered her room as just an impossibly lovely girl. The woman who emerged was a trifle thinner, a great deal wiser, an ocean sadder. This one understood the nature of pain, and beneath the glory of her features there was character and a sure knowledge of suffering. She was eighteen. She was the most beautiful woman in a hundred years. She didn't seem to care. "'You're all right?' her mother asked. Buttercup sipped her cocoa. "'Fine,' she said. "'You're sure?' her father wondered. "'Yes,' Buttercup replied. "'There was a very long pause, but I must never love again.' What do you make of this? That's a good point, Arthur, and since you made it and it's not my fault, I'll do it. Remember I said I was going to try not to be comparing to the film, 
but Arthur has a very concrete observation, which I will permit here. Um, he is recalling, as of course I was recalling too, um, that in the film, Buttercup says, I will never love again. And in the book, she says, but I must never love again. And Arthur is saying, that seems a significant difference between saying, I will never love again, and I must never love again. And I too think that that's significant. What, what's the difference? What's the difference between I will never love again and I must never love again? What do we see in Book Buttercup here that we're not necessarily saying? Good, Arthur, I agree. One is an observation, the other is a decision. Yes, I will never love again is a statement of fact, right? I can see that this is never going to happen. Um, there may be resolution contained in that, but it's not a statement of resolution. It's a st- it's an in- statement of fact, right? I must never love again is clearly a decision, as you say. It's a statement of, re- I have made up my mind that I am never... But notice, it's even different from that. It's not the same as, but I am never going to love again. I must never love again. It is imperative that I never love again. That's also a kind of an observation. It's an observation that reflects a decision. But literally, it states the need for a decision, right? I must never... It, it, is, it is important that I never love again. Um... Yeah, interesting. Carita says she has a choice to love again, but and forbids herself. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Arthur says she's not just wounded; she's move here. She's moving to protect herself uh, from more pain. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah. Now, Sarah Powell asks the excellent question here. Um, Sarah says. This passage makes us, you know, makes us wonder if she's been compelled by spontaneous love, or if her affections and actions are more calculated. Um, that's the thing that it is raising, right? By saying "I must never love again," she is saying, "I need to take control of my emotions." We've seen her be wildly out of control of her emotions, whether it was out of control of her envy at first or whether it is out of control of her expressed affection afterwards. Um, we've seen her do the out-of-control thing. Um, this is this seems different, and the difference seems to... I mean, the emphasis that he makes on that middle description, right? She had entered her room as just an impossibly lovely girl. The woman who emerged was a trifle thinner, a great deal wiser, an ocean sadder. Um, you know, he is plainly directing us to see a change in Buttercup's character. And that last line does suggest, and I think we're supposed to contrast that line, right? We're supposed to be remembering those incredibly long paragraphs of effusive, uh, almost unselfconscious reflection of her own emotions, right? Um, now, very briefly, she recognizes that she must never love again and is going to set out she's in control right? She's not weeping. Her parents are, like, waiting for her to break down or something, right? They're expecting to have to comfort her. She's under control, right? Because she now... Uh, and I, so I think that's... Um, uh, um, 
that's uh, that's something I think which brings us closer to her um, and softens the laughing at her that we were doing. I mean, I think most of us were laughing at her when she was declaring. I mean, think, I, I think it's safe to say we're supposed to be laughing at her. The question is, what's the tone of that, right? You know, how are we laughing at her in mockery? Um, a couple of you were, uh, were saying that she before she sounded, you know, kind of ditzy, um, you know, and I agree. She was sounding a little bit empty-headed in some of those. You know, she didn't sound incredibly smart uh, and with it when she was talking like that before. This sounds much more collected, right? She does not really sound like that anymore. Um, uh, yeah, Daniel Bear says it actually feels like a genuine moment, with Morgenstern being less in, less uh, less intrusive, and greatly enhances the narrative language and draws more sympathy with Buttercup. Um, I agree. I agree. Even the way in which um, the way in which that final dialogue happens without commentary, right? Um, it's, it's pretty understated for Morgenstern, right? Um, even the she was 18, she was the most beautiful woman in a hundred years. She didn't seem to care. That series of simple statements um, leading into, uh, you know, sort of pointing on the one hand to the contrast between, you know, her now perfected beauty and her desolation of spirit. Um, that's 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 really kind of lovely. Um, here, I think we get um, uh, here. I think we get something that is. It feels like Morgenstern is letting us get closer here than we've gotten before. Interesting, Jennifer. That's a fascinating observation. Jennifer says, I must never love again. Sounds like something a young uh, Anne of Green Gables would say. Uh, Yeah, that is interesting. And of course it does... um, You're right, Jennifer. Um, And of course, remembering the relatively impetuous and effusive uh, Young Anne of Green Gables, um, uh, which, by the way, was one of the books I was required to read prior to my marriage. Uh, my my uh, proposal of marriage was accepted conditionally by my wife. Uh, I had some reading I had to do. Uh, <clears throat> the first order of business, of course, was to complete all the Jane Austen novels. I'd only read three. And uh, uh, and and the other was to read Anne of Green Gables. And in fact, we went to Prince Edward Island on our honeymoon, so that was definitely requisite. Um, so I see what you're saying, and I agree. And what that, to me, uh, calls and sort of suggests is yes, there's been a maturing here. Yes, there's been a changing. But also, <clears throat> I must never love again. It's not like that is a statement of perfect, sage, mature wisdom, Right? Um, it's a it's a response to what came before. She is exercising emotional control now, like she wasn't before. But those of us who are older than eighteen might still say to Buttercup, um, uh, "Perhaps that's not going to be the whole story, right? Maybe, in fact, the story isn't over right now in the way that you think it might be." from where you're sitting at that particular moment. Um, uh, anyway, 
Cool. Neat. Neat. Okay. Um, more. Her uh, courtship with Humperdinck. I am your prince, and you will marry me, Humperdinck said. Buttercup whispered, I am your servant, and I refuse. I am your prince, and you cannot refuse. I am your loyal servant, and I just did. Refusal means death. Kill me, then. I am your prince, and I am not that bad. How could you rather be dead than married to me? Because, Buttercup said, marriage involves love, and that is not a pastime at which I excel. I tried once, and it went badly, and I am sworn never to love another. Now, here I'm going to ask you to reserve comments on Humperdinck himself. Um, we'll get to Humperdinck. Um, I want to focus primarily on Buttercup here. Um, what do you make of this? Again, the question is, where are we being placed in relationship with Buttercup? What kind of cues are we being given into how we receive Buttercup? And therefore... My focus here is not just to focus on the character of Buttercup, but to take this, take her as a kind of a case study, right? Buttercup as case study of where are we in relationship to this narrative? What is Morgenstern doing? How, what kind of a narrative is Morgenstern doing? What kind of a response is Morgenstern eliciting from us? And how does that fit in to Goldman's overall frame uh, after that? Um... Thomas Johnson asks, an excellent question. I wonder where Buttercup got the idea that marriage involves love, given that her parents aren't exactly a sterling example of a loving marriage. Thomas, I agree that does seem to come in later, when she is justifying her engagement to Humperdinck to Wesley when they meet again. Um, when, uh, you know, and when she's thinking about, like, is it okay to marry without loving or liking your spouse? And she says, like, yeah, it's not, it's not great, but it's, it's, it's okay, right? You know, it, it happens all the time. There, Thomas, is where I, I especially hear sort of the echo of her, uh, of her, of her parents' uh, marriage. Carita points out an excellent uh, negative observation of that is of what she doesn't do here. Uh, she doesn't insult him or get dramatic. Um, we do not see an effusive overfl- overflowing of emotion here. Um, she is still very much. Under verbal, you know, under control. Her, you know, her words are under control here. Um, good. Arthur points out that I must never love again has now changed into an oath. I am sworn never to love another. I agree, Arthur. That does sound like a different thing, doesn't it? Um. Yeah. Good. Now Rachel points out again the equating of marriage and love seems to be an immature response uh, as well. Um, yeah. In a sense. In a sense. Um, yeah, Sarah Powell uh, really likes, thinks it's that, you know, she's really funny in her understated commentary about her own emotional history, but she shows great strength of character. You see, Sarah, what that suggests? We're laughing with her, not at her, in that last line. See the, the difference there, right? She is, you know, in saying marriage involves love, and that is not a pastime at which I excel, right? Buttercup is being sardonic. And if we laugh there, we laugh not at her, but with her, right? Probably. Um, that's an interesting change to me. Um, uh, yeah, Ian Blaylock says, uh, is Morgenstern satirizing royal courtships? Uh, well, yes, it does seem so. Um, 
I mean, to me, Ian, the, the line that stands out there is, I am your prince and I'm not that bad. How could you rather be dead than married to me? Rather than responding in rage, right? How dare you thwart my royal will, right? Instead of going at that, he, he's just kind of flabbergasted. He's like, what the heck, right? I, I'm not that bad. I'm your prince, right? I, you know, like, okay, so maybe you're not into me, but like, how could you be, how could you rather be dead than be queen, right? It doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's funny. Um, yeah, now as Kate points out, uh, she says, I'm not sure it's immature, but it is romantic. She certainly expected to be marrying Wesley when he returned from making his fortune. Her life expectations have been crushed, and she has nothing to fill the void. Um, yes, yes, it is certainly a romantic view of marriage, right, that marriage involves love. Um, though, as Thomas has pointed out, it's a romantic ideal which she seems to have formulated and held on to in defiance of uh, her local example uh, in her parents. Um, Sarah King asks, again, an excellent question. She says, I'm confused. Is Morgan Stern satirizing this fairy tale or fairy tales in general? And if so, why is he making us care about these characters? Or is he caring in spite of himself? Those are exactly the questions that I have. It's what—it's the thing I find so interesting about this book when we think about it from this uh, 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 point of reference. Where are... That's why I keep asking that question. Like, where are we? Where are we supposed to be? What is our relationship with this? Is he... Um, is he writing a fairy tale that he wants to draw us into? Um, or is he satirizing fairy tales? And again, who is he? Is Morgenstern trying to satirize this? Do we have... Because there are a couple options. Right, Sarah? We could say Morgenstern is satirizing this. Right? He's writing a satire. But Goldman is inviting us to... Now, Goldman, the narrator has explicitly prompted us to get lost in it, right? He's, the whole theory of his abridgment is that he's giving us just the good parts, right? I was read the good parts as a kid by my father, and I got, I got completely lost and drawn into the story, and it, in, in, it not only did I love it, but it awoke within me a love of stories, right? That's the, that's the, the, the base framework of, of Goldman the abridger, right? Goldman the narrator, so he has prompted us from the beginning, from before we ever read a word of Morgenstern, Goldman the narrator has told us, you should love this story. I loved this story. I'm sharing it with you because I think it's really important for to give Morgenstern's work a, a, a wider audience in America because I want more and more people to love this story and get into it. That's the cue we get from him. Um, so who is... Who's like... Who's winning? Are they working in different directions? Um, where is the satire? Those are, for me, the fascinating questions. Whenever anybody does this, whenever anybody creates this kind of a multi-layer work, where you've got the, 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 the fictional writer and then the commentator upon that and everything, even whether or not you agree that the narrator can be viewed as sort of a separate character, um, a separate fictional character, um, there's always that invitation to sort of think about those different layers and, and wherein d does the particular satire lie? You know, whom are we laughing with? And, and at, you know, because are we laughing with or at the characters? Are we laughing with or at Morgan Stern? Are we laughing with or at uh, Goldman? 
Um, and, you know, that can kind of shift around and we can have different balances of those things um, at various points uh, in the story. So that's, uh, that's exactly the very good question, Sarah. Though, of course, we're nowhere near an actual conclusion uh, to, that, to that question. Uh, but, uh, but, but, but it's exactly the question that I want us to be asking. Um, yeah, good, good. Yeah, Kristen Hauk was saying she's noticed that, uh, neither narrator maintains consistency in the target of satire, um, or sympathy. I think I agree with that. Um, yeah, good. Um, Sarah Powell points out that, uh, um, the very modern-sounding back-and-forth between Buttercup and Humperdinck really shows up the anachronistic tendencies in Morgenstern's writing. Um, yes. Yes, they certainly do. Remember, this goes back to the business with the parentheses that we discussed last time. Both Morgenstern's parentheses and Goldman, the narrator's commentary on Morgenstern's parentheses. And you'll recall that Goldman, the narrator, said that the parentheses were themselves, his reading of them was that that was Morgenstern telling us this is all made up, right? Um, he was taking those parentheses as a cue that we shouldn't, that we shouldn't really take any of it seriously, that we should distance ourselves from it. Um, so if that's the case, Sarah, then we could say, you know, Moments like this, these kind of anachronistic tendencies, as you say, um, are places where Morgenstern is being satirical, where he's pushing us back from this. And yet, we can connect with the characters. We can relate to what's going on. We can see uh, Buttercup can sort of carry on being a sympathetic character uh, in this moment. Um, uh yeah, interesting. Ian Blaylock says, I found myself thinking that Morgan Stern and Goldman the narrator are usually at opposite ends of the opinion scale. Um, yeah, yeah, and again, that, seem, that seems to be, that fits with the, um, with that picture we were painting last week about Goldman the narrator as being kind of a doofus, right? How he loves and loves this book and just thinks the world of this book when in fact his very his abridgment and his very commentary of it suggests that it's not actually anything like as good as he thinks it is and that his in his in abridging it the way that he is what he's really doing is attempting to make it good despite itself right um that he doesn't even perceive the extent to which he himself is is, is essentially misreading the story because that's the drama that's sort of eventually, the central drama of that introduction. The introduction about him trying to find the book for his ten-year-old son, and finally finding the book, and then having his ten-year-old son hating it, and then he's crushed by the fact that his ten-year-old son doesn't like the book that was so meaningful to him, and then he reads it himself and discovers, oh my gosh, it's awful. Right? Um, Because I've never actually read it myself, I only had my father telling it to me. Um, So he has that discovery. Again, that drama of Goldman the narrator discovering that the unabridged Morgan Stern is actually not a good read when in his mind it's always been like this sort of platonic ideal of the good story. Um, that was the central drama of the introduction, right? So we're given that from the beginning. So seeing that play out through the narrative, seeing the fact that Goldman, the narrator, is not really in touch with what Morgan Stern is doing, that seems... Um, 
um, that seems to you know that 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 seems to fit with the pattern that's clearly established for us uh, in the introduction. Um, let's uh, let's carry on. Let's let's keep looking at Buttercup here. Buttercup could feel the upset coming. Um, this is uh, sorry. I, I should. Uh, 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 Contextualize. This is, of course, her conversation with Wesley after uh, 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 she's been uh, rescued. Uh, this is after the Iocane uh, sequence, and uh, she and Wesley are running with. She still doesn't know who Wesley is, and uh, uh, he is being very harsh with her and uh, questioning her about her relationship with her fiance. Buttercup could feel the upset coming. We were always very honest with each other. Not everyone can say as much. May I please tell you something, Highness? You're very cold. I'm not very cold and very young, and if you live, I think you'll turn to hoarfrost. Why do you pick at me? I have come to terms with my life, and that is my affair. I am not cold, I swear, but I have decided certain things. It is best for me to ignore emotion. I have not been happy dealing with it. Her heart was a secret garden, and the walls were very high. I loved once, Buttercup said after a moment. It worked out badly. Another rich man? Yes, and he left you for a richer woman? No, poor. Poor, and it killed him. Were you sorry? Did you feel pain? Admit that you felt nothing. Do not mock my grief. I died that day. Uh, what we, yeah, Jennifer Visek says, uh, Ooh, look, it's Buttercup as Eowyn. Yes, yes. Uh, Yes. Cold. Cold. Like a flower which has been frozen, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. More. What do we get here? What do you see here? What do you notice? Again, thinking about these questions we've been asking and, and you know, sort of trying to find our place here and sort of see what direction or in which directions this story is pushing and pulling us here. Um, what do you... Uh, what do you note here? A line which certainly um, jumps out at me is that moment of commentary that Morgenstern interrupts with, her heart was a secret garden and the walls were very high. That's an interesting statement to me. Um, not only because it's, it's, a, it's a powerful metaphor that he interrupts, her narrative with, but the the precipitation of his interruption, right? That is, she's in the middle of a sentence, apparently, and Morgan Stern has interrupted her to bring us this simile, right? So it's it's rather an abrupt interruption, um, but it's it's also a rather, <clears throat> I don't know, a rather lovely and a rather un a, a rather understated one. That comment from. Morgan Stern does seem to assist us in sympathizing with Buttercup, in getting closer to the... Whereas I think, and several of you seem to, to be arguing as well, that he tends to... Morgan Stern, the narrator, tends to be distancing us uh, from Buttercup, yet here we see him not doing that, and I think that that's really, that that's really interesting. Um, and yeah, Kate... Uh, no, I think it's inescapable to be thinking of the book *The Secret Garden* uh, there, um, and I, I have a hard time imagining that uh, Goldman was not thinking of it then. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, good. Um, Arthur asks, does she feel that her poverty killed him? Or that, she, or his poverty, that she can, like, is she, is she blaming herself? Um, you know, is she, uh, is she, is she sort of taking responsibility for his death there? Um, I don't think for herself, like, it's, the, it's not that she lacks money. Um, I mean, yeah, she does lack money. She is poor. Um, but it was his poverty that killed him because it was his poverty that made, that led him to have to go away to seek his fortune, um, in order to, in order to marry her. Um, so being poor in that sense is what killed him. I don't really see, you know, her blaming herself there. Um, but it is an interesting thing to say. Poor, poor, and it killed him. Um... Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, I certainly think the effect of this passage, and you know, I mean, as you see, I've chosen. I'm kind. Of, I'm cherry picking to some extent, but I, I do think, you know, I've I tried to just sort of go through and look at moments which are clearly moments of high emotional drama, um, moments which seem to me the most sensible, not because they showed a particular thing, but because they're conspicuous places to look at. If we're trying to figure out um, how does this, how is this book asking us to relate to this character, these particular moments, when she declares her love for Wesley, uh, when she, uh, how she changes and, resp- you know, how her love for Wesley changes her life, h- how she responds when she hears about Wesley's death, how she responds when the prince, you know, when Prince Humberding proposes to her and how she ends up entering into that arrangement. Um, you know, this response when she is, uh, when she's sort of defending her emotions against uh, this harsh stranger who has re-abducted her, who of course, uh, uh, who of course turns out to be Wesley. Um, uh, and, um, you know, th- those just struck me as moments Again, I, I, I gave them to you not because I think they create, they point necessarily to one thing, but because they seemed uh, uh, the relevant places to look to answer this question. Daniel Bear has a cool question. Why is the eye not italicized? First, check your editions. Is that, did, I, did I get that right? Is that right? Is the eye not italicized in your other editions too? If I do have that correct, then... Um, what do you think? I, I think it's, I think it's a fascinating, uh, uh, very detailed observation, Daniel. I love I, I, I love that. Um, my approach to literary interpretation is very much like Sherlock Holmes's uh, 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 approach to uh, to solving crimes. Um, there's nothing so important as trifles, uh, Holmes liked to say, uh, and I completely agree. Um, Good. Jennifer says the emphasis comes on the word died, not I. But, of course, the whole rest of the sentence is emphasized. If the I were italicized, the whole sentence would simply sort of seem to be reflecting, like, her raising her voice, right? Do not mock my grief. I died that day! And that comes across very different as merely the emphasis upon that I died that day. Right? There's a very big difference between just like, I'm starting to shout now, and 
I am emphasizing this. And I can't help but remember the first passages we looked at, right? This long, effusive, me, 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 me declaration of her love, right? She doesn't stress the I here, right? She only stresses what happened. She stresses her emotional death on that day. Um, and that, I think that's, I think that's interesting. Um, uh, okay, well, Sarah Powell says in her edition, the eye is italicized. Hmm. Oh, well. Um, I like it better anyway. Uh, <laughs> we'll see if it's, if, uh, if, uh, if, if Golden didn't intend to leave that unitalicized, he should have. Um, I don't know. But anyway, um, good. Mary Rose says it makes her much more matter-of-fact good, and I would add more in control of her emotions. Again, this is not just her um, sort of raging out of control again, um, as she did before. Um, good. Good. Okay. Another pivotal moment. Um, surrendering after the fire swamp. Buttercup took a step forward and said, If we surrender, freely and without struggle, if life returns to what it was one dusk ago, will you swear not to hurt this man? Prince Humperdinck raised his right hand. I swear on the grave of my soon-to-be-dead father and the soul of my already-dead mother that I shall not hurt this man, and if I do, may I never hunt again, though I live a thousand years. Buttercup turned to Wesley. There, she said, you can't ask for more than that, and that is the truth. The truth, said Wesley, is that you would rather live with your prince than die with your love. I would rather live than die, I admit it. We were talking of love, madam. There was a long pause. Then Buttercup said it. I can live without love. And with that, she left Wesley alone. What happens here? Where are we now? Daniel thinks she should have just given him a nice paper cut and squeezed lemon juice on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. Um... Jennifer emphasizes that she's trying to save his life. Yes, yes. Um, yes, she is. The question is, to what extent can the whole of this passage be attributed to that? Um, yeah. I was this close to making a comment about the movie, but I didn't. funny. You guys have been really uh, voluble all class. You know, keep getting lots and lots of comments. I, I, I've not even been able to talk about half of them. Um, nobody's saying much about this passage, though. Okay, good. Well, let's start... Lynn, I like that. Let's start with a sort of a more neutral observation. She's very naive to believe the prince, Lynn says. Um... Yeah. Now, on the one hand, you could say that she's perfectly correct to say you can't ask for more than that, and that's the truth. Um, it, it kind of it reminds me, um, it reminds me of that moment 
in uh, the Two Towers when Frodo says to Farm, you know, when Gollum swears on the precious that he'll never tell and never come again about Hennethanun, and uh, Faramir says to Frodo, are you satisfied? And Frodo says, yes, well, you'll get no more out of him, right? So you must either kill him or accept that, because that's all you're going to get, right? It kind of it reminds me of that to some extent. You could say, say like, you know, he's given us the most that he'll give in as much as we can, you know, um, we, we must either accept this or 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 move on. But, but Lynn, I'm inclined to agree with you. I'm inclined to believe that there's naivete here and not that this is not just this is not sort of wisdom and perception like he's a deceitful jerk so we're not going to be able to get better than that. I think that on some level she did uh she did she does believe him. Um in which case Arthur draws the conclusion that she comes across therefore here as a little bit impulsive again which character-wise would be a bit of backsliding. Uh, from, you know, the direction that her character had been going. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, but let's, we, we have to, we have to approach the big question, the whole love versus life issue. Remember, that's been on the table now for a while, right? Um, I died that day. She's already, you know, her life ended with her love when her love died. She died that day. Um, And now Wesley is saying, you would rather live with your prince than die with your love. And she says, I would rather live than die. I admit it. Um, So I I agree, that's that's very much the issue. Now, let's see. Uh, uh, Meta Swanson says, Her position on love and life versus death has changed since Humperdinck proposed. Before, she would rather die than marry without love when she thought it was gone. Now she's willing to give up her newly returned love in order to stay alive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Good. Good. Um, uh, so what conclusions do we draw from that, Meta? Um, it's, it's a good observation. It's excellent to bring us back to that other passage. Then kill me, right? Kill me then, she says to Humperdinck. Um, she would rather die than live with her prince, right? Now... Wesley says she'd rather live with her prince than die, and and it seems like she that has changed. Um, how has her love being returned to her changed that? How are we supposed to understand that? Um, I mean, let me let me um, let me put it really bluntly. Um, it's really easy to read this passage and say, "Wow." What a cold fish Buttercup is. Um, To feel that this moment is the moment when... Like, you know uh, uh, that sudden, startling, flatulent sound that a balloon makes when you let go of it and it deflates and flies all across the room? It's possible to hear that sound in this passage, 
right? Like we've been in, inflating this true love balloon, right? This, you know, we've been becoming more invested in Buttercup. Our respect for Buttercup has been rising. Um, you know, we see, you know, and, the, and, and, and you know, she's reunited with Wesley. Um, and then in this moment, the respect we've gained for her uh, is gone now. That's a possible reading of this passage. Okay, I'm not saying it's the inescapable reading. There are other ways that we could... But if so, if that's not it, then what? And if that's not it, convince me. Maybe you think that is it. Maybe we think this is a moment when, basically, uh, Morgan Stern is pulling the rug out from under us. It might be, right? I mean, that's a way to, that's, that's a, that's a way to do it. That's a way to go on. Um, uh, a, a, the satirists often do that kind of thing. Sort of lull you in one direction and then pull the rug out from under you. Maybe that was, that's what just happened here. Like, oh yeah, you really, for a little while there, you really kind of bought into that Buttercup is Tragic Heroine thing, right? Yeah, not so much, right? I can live without love, she says, and leaves Wesley alone. Goodbye, true love. Yeah, Brian Yoder has said he's also thinking of the uh, the vinyl disc scratch sound. Yeah, 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 that's very Monty Python. At least that's what I associate that sound with as a transitional sound at the end of a sketch. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Sarah Powell says, the first time you read this, it's hard to understand. Later, it seems like an authorial lead-in to the fake-out with the dream sequence. Maybe. Maybe. Um, ultimately, I think we understand it as her trying to keep Wesley alive because she loves him. Yes. Um... Yes. It seems to me that if we're going to make a like reconstructive argument, if we're going to fight the deflation of Buttercup in this scene, the primary method to that is to say, this is just an act. Right? She's not being sincere in her words. She's performing before Humperdinck. And it's all in an attempt to save Wesley's life. It's a reading that strikes me as possible, right? We've seen her emotional control, right? We've seen that develop. I consider it conceivable that she is explicitly trying to buy his life at first, and then appearing to care for him less than she does so as not to give Humperdinck more reason to kill him. Just as she makes out that he's only a, a, a hand aboard the sea, she doesn't, make a, she, she doesn't betray the fact that he is the captain of the Dread Pirate, the, 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 the Dread Pirate Robert ship. She says he's just, you know, a hand on the ship. So she minimize, just as she minimizes that in order to make him seem less important and therefore more likely actually to be released by Humperdinck, so she is downplaying her love for him because if he really, if Humperdinck believed that he was actually her long-lost true love uh, and he, Humperdinck, plans to marry her, he would have all kinds of motivation to kill him. So she's tr- just trying to decrease his... Mo- she's being extremely wily and just trying to decrease his uh, motivation to kill Wesley. 
that seems to me the strongest possible pro buttercup recuperation argument um, in this passage. Um, I have a hard time with it. I don't... I can almost buy it, but not quite. Um, Ooh, Carolyn Morehouse. What a wonderful observation. Uh, Carolyn says, uh, uh, with a rapier point, you could argue that Buttercup would rather live with the fantasy that Wesley will be returned to his ship. Um, Yeah, combining this discussion of her relationship between love, life, and death and her apparent naivete in accepting uh, Humperdinck's word that Wesley won't be killed. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Lee, I agree. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Lee Smith says uh, she felt the experience of Wesley's death once, and she felt that that was like death. She can't bear to experience his death again. Um, you know, and where there's life, there's hope. As long as the beloved is alive, she can hope to be reunited somehow. Yes, yes. I can't accept that as a wholly sufficient reading of the passage, though, because it fits the first half but not the second half to me. That is, that's reason enough to justify her surrender in the first place. Her saying what she says in that first paragraph here. If we surrender, um, will you swear not to hurt this man? Right? Um, But the latter part of it, her exchange with Wesley is the part that I have a hard time doing. And Okay, I can't resist. Lee, what you described is exactly what they do in the movie, right? But look at all the lines that are here that are not in the film. And it's not just that it's made more concise, right? The exchange between Wesley and Buttercup doesn't happen in the film. And it's an element... I think it's a... To me, it's sort of a game-changing element. Um, At least, potentially. Um, Now, here's the fun thing. Notice, Notice the language I was using before, when I said, okay, on the surface, this passage appears to deflate Buttercup. Um, this this passage on the surface seems to get us seems to 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 tell us Buttercup actually has become cold in the way that Wesley accused her of before um, that she that Wesley's uh, accusation is seems to be true that she would rather live with the prince than die with her love and it's hard to um, it's hard to uh, 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 reconcile that to the more romantic um, view uh, of her that, you know, and greater respect for her that we were perhaps building. And then I said, that seems to be what the passage points to. Can we construct another reading? Um, Could we find another way to interpret this that is sympathetic to Buttercup? Now, a cynical person might say, why are you going through that effort? Right, the passage shows this. This is the obvious reading. You know, the surface is pointing you clearly in this direction. Sure, if you want, if you apply yourself, you can come up with another reading. You can think of some really clever and convoluted way in which this 
actually says something opposite to what it appears to say, right? But that's just a that's just one of those Columbia University academic exercises, right? It's not, uh, you know, what what justification could we have for performing that kind of exercise? The frame narrative, right? Is this another? Is this a moment where we have the text pushing us in two different directions, right? Um, we have Morgenstern, the storyteller, pointing us in one direction. Morgenstern, the storyteller, pulling the rug out from under Buttercup here. This is sort of a moment of kind of satirical climax for Morgenstern. But Goldman, the abridger, is still wanting to push us in, in another way. And he's been framing this story in a way so that we maybe do think sympathetically towards Buttercup and find a way to uh, uh, to 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 make that work. Um, does that prove that it does work? You know that we can find the sympathetic reading for Buttercup. No, it doesn't prove that. Um, but to me, it justifies the exercise of thinking it through, right? Um, and make, you know, the fact that we see that, the fact that we look at it in both ways, the fact that we can see, maybe we can see this this moment in the story pushing us in more than one direction because of that um, that sort of built-in conflict of interest between Goldman and Morgenstern uh, that we've been observing. Um, the fact that we can that we can see that is interesting, but that doesn't mean we have to decide on who wins. We may decide that, you know, the Morgenstern direction, um, the deflation direction is in the end more, uh, more, more effective. And it's harder for us to cling to the version of the story to which Goldman is obviously clinging in his own memory of his childhood hearing of the story. Um, okay. I think... I'm okay. All right, one more. I'm going to skip. Uh, there's a couple more passages I wanted to talk about, but I'm, I'm going to skip ahead to one more. Um, this is right at the end. It's the end of chapter five. Um, this is uh, well, almost the end. Right? He gets clubbed on the head. Notices that Count Rugen has six fingers after this, but um, this is so. This is after. Buttercup is ridden away with Humperdinck. Wesley watched it all. He stood silently at the edge of the fire swamp. It was darker now, but the flame spurts behind him outlined his face. He was glazed with fatigue. He had been bitten, cut, gone without rest, had assaulted the cliffs of insanity, had saved and taken lives. He had risked his world, and now it was walking away from him, hand in hand with a ruffian prince. Then Buttercup was gone, out of sight. Wesley took a breath. He was aware of the score of soldiers starting to surround him, and probably he could have made a few of them perspire for their victory. But for what point? Wesley sagged. What does this do? How does this, uh, how does this inform our reading of the previous passage? How does this, where does this leave us at the end of the almost inconceivably long chapter 5. Well, that's a conclusion. Observations. What do you notice? 
What jumps out at you here? It leaves us confused, Sarah Lagarde says. Yeah, yeah I agree. I agree. Um, Neil says, Wesley believes Buttercup. Yes, I agree. Neil, I think one thing that we can say that I'm ready to say without hesitation, ironically, I just hesitated before saying that, um, is that Wesley believes that Buttercup is sincere. Wesley does. If, uh, if our question is, do we think that Buttercup still really loves Wesley and we're still holding out to this sort of sympathetic, romantic view of Buttercup, um, Wesley's not with us, right? Um, he thinks that she's left him. Uh, and that his his final assessment, that is, that you would rather live with your prince than die with your love, what he just heard from her seems to be, that's right. That's right. You you have you have correctly assessed it. I I choose Humperdinck. Thank you for rescuing me. I choose Humperdinck. Goodbye. Seems to be what Wesley has just heard, right? He's given up here. That well, almost penultimate paragraph. Goldman is really fond of these really short paragraphs. Wesley took a breath. He was aware of the score of soldiers starting to surround him, and probably he could have made a few of them perspire for their victory. But for what point? He had risked his world, and now it was walking away from him, hand in hand with a ruffian prince. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sarah Powell points out, it revolves around how we read, for, but for what point? Is he disappointed in Buttercup's actions, or just generally in the outcome of all of his efforts? Um... I think Buttercup's actions... I, I, I mean... Because of what... Because of that other, because of the end of the, the last sentence in the first paragraph. He had risked his world, and now it was walking away from him, hand in hand with a ruffian prince. Um, if he had no doubts... If he had no doubts about Buttercup's actions, about Buttercup's feelings, right... If he did not feel betrayed by Buttercup in this moment, then all that has just happened, if his faith in if his implicit faith in Buttercup remains unbroken, then a new set of obstacles has simply opened up between him and his love. Right? He's already done all of these things, he's already risked his world you know, so compared with all the things he's already done, merely to, you know, to to escape from the captivity of Prince Humperdinck and, and you know, rescue his, uh, his love before she marries the prince, which is more or less exactly what's going to end up attempting to happen. Um, that's nothing, right? Or, I mean, it's, it's not nothing, it's something, but it's more the same, right? Par for the course, it's the kind of thing he's been doing, surely he'd be willing to do more of it, right? It's not simply the additional challenge, like, oh... No, I can't. I can't handle one more thing. Forget it. It's not worth it. That's certainly not what I hear here, right? He's sagging because he's. What's the point? Why continue to struggle? Why continue to sacrifice and put myself through all of this? Why do? Why? Why even get into round two of the miraculous rescue? If she does, if that's what she thinks, if that's how she feels, um. Uh, that 
I, that's that's certainly how I read Wesley's response here. Um, yeah, interesting. Lynn says, rather than the suave, confident, controlled men in black, I'm reminded more of the farm boy, uh, and he is deflated. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, Thomas Johnson has an interesting point. He says, it also shows that for all Wesley's cynical surmises about Buttercup earlier in the chapter, before his, before his identity is revealed to her, he still believed in her integrity and ability to feel until this point. Yeah, yeah, Thomas, that seems right. That seems right. Um... <laughs> Brian Yoder is just teasing me for saying, yeah, no, I agree. Um, it's my, my classic Silmarillion seminar move. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, Carolyn Morehouse says, it puts the final nail in Buttercup's character's coffin, showing the terrible desolation that her decision has caused within Wesley. Yes, Unless he's still going to be taken out of this, right? Unless it just turns out that he's misunderstanding and all will be set right later on. Still possible, right? Still... I keep using the word conceivable for some reason. I don't know why. Um, but, um, yeah, it's still it's still possible. Um, I think, you know, one conclusion... Um, and this is a pretty half-hearted conclusion, uh, or rather, this is a this is a, a an only at the stage where we are conclusion. Um, one conclusion that I certainly would suggest is, when we do this kind of a case study as we've just been doing tonight of Buttercup's character, in, as a case study in order to try to answer the question, where how is this narrative driving us? How is it moving us? How is it positioning us in relationship to the story, to the characters? You know. How do we connect with or relate to the story that is being given to us within this complicated Morgenstern Goldman frame? Um, you know, the answer is it's complicated. Uh, the answer is um, the answer is that we can see it pushing us in different directions, um, and that it's, it really suggests to me that our reading of the frame works. Um, and that the sort of postulated idea that we were suggesting last time, this idea that Morgenstern is being satirical and narrative and negative, rather, being satirical and negative and also not necessarily very competent, you know, not being a very good storyteller. Um, whereas Goldman is pushing us to this more kind of rose-tinted, uh, reading of the story um, that's, that 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 so far seems to me to be uh, um, to be borne out um, but um, but we still we still have a ways to go let's continue looking at this stuff next time um, and as I said I doubt we're gonna get so far as the end I will um, I'm already mentally adding another class to give us a little bit more time to look through this stuff. Um, 
next time we certainly will look at uh, Inigo and Fezzik. I'm not going to promise to do like a, you know, we're not going to do full character sketches of them like we were doing with Buttercup tonight, because again, the point is not that Buttercup is the most important character in the story, but just that I found her a really interesting case study for us to look at. But I don't want to miss the, the Inigo and Fezzik stuff. One thing I would say, though, I find that that the stuff that I really want to talk about with Inigo and Fezzik um, doesn't lend itself quite so much to choosing out passages in the way that I normally do. Um, so I would invite you to look through chapter 5 again. <laughs> no small assignment, that. Uh, look through chapter 5 again, and um, be thinking especially why the narrative shape. Look at the narrative shape of chapter 5. In particular, the biographical sketches of Inigo and Fezzik with which he inter- he interrupts the story in, in those moments. Um, when he does it, how he does it, and how those things function. So in those ways, I want to look a little bit more kind of macroscopically at the narrative and how the Inigo and Fezzik stories are woven into that and what sort of effect that has. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, but then we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, so we're doing the rest. Go ahead and read the rest of the book. Read and, excuse me, read and reread the rest of the book for next time. And we'll, uh, um, we'll think about, we may get as far as the end, but I don't, I don't expect that we will. Um, but as we go on, how does, how does the Miracle Max sequence impact us? How do, when we see the wedding, when we see, um, you know, the, the, the rescue and Inigo and Fezzik and how, the, the circumstances under which Wesley does in fact accomplish that thing that I was just accomplishing, right? Phase two of his, you know, dramatic romantic fairy tale rescue um, of his true love from the evil prince, or from the ruffian prince, excuse me. Um, where are we being positioned there? How does the latter part of the story impact uh, and inform this, you know, our position uh, in relationship to the narrative and the way we've been talking about it. Anyway, that's what we'll do next week. That's what I want you guys to be thinking about. Thanks for all of your observations and comments. This has been fun, uh, and I look forward to continuing this conversation next week. Thanks very much, everybody. Good night.